0: Dear God, today my mom and I went to visit my grandma and grandpa. Mom said it was only a short drive, but it felt like forever. Mom told me that grandpa wasn't feeling good, but when I got there, he didn't even look like the same grandpa. Last year, he had me and my brother over to his farm, and we would spend the whole day fixing things together. He would buy a scrape Kool-Aid, and we work on the lawnmower all afternoon. Now he doesn't look so good. We didn't stay long, but Grandma said we could come back when he feels better. I hope he gets better soon. He said I could spend the night this summer, and I really want to, God. But most of all, I just want Grandpa to feel good again. See you tomorrow. Caden. Just a couple things that I forgot to say a few moments ago. If you're our guest here for the first time, when you came in, you got a talk to us card. Or if you didn't get a talk to us card, there's a little generic quiet one in the seat in front of you. We'd like to give you a gift if you're our guest for the first time. If you'll take just a moment when the service is over to stop by guest services out there in the front, or there's a little one back there by the coffee shop. We have a little gift bag for you. It's got a gift in it. And then there's some chocolate or something in there. It's our way of saying how sweet it is that you're visiting with us. Um, and so please, please come by and receive that. Also, too, when you get your Talk to Us card, you can, exp- you can let us know several things on there. For instance, we're having a watermark celebration, as you saw in the announcement, which is baptism. It's going public with your faith. Uh, many of us have, you know, we were baptized as a baby, but we've never, like, expressed our own public faith. And so if you're interested in that, you can sign up for that. This, today is the last day for the July watermark. So I want to encourage you to take that step if you haven't taken it already. Our series has been TalkingToGod.com and, and I really hate to come to the end of it. Usually when I'm at this point where I can see a series like Summer of Love coming up and I'm coming to the end of a series, I'm ready to move on. But this is one time I've been really reluctant to, to leave it because it's been such a great experience for our church. It's been everything that I hoped it would be. You know, we, we did more than just four talks. We, we launched a website, TalkingToGod.com, and it's, it's just been wonderful. Each week I've, I or one of the staff has Put a little devotional about prayer, and then you guys have brought your comments and your prayer requests and the answers to prayer. And Frankly, I think I've learned more about prayer from you than you've learned from me, but it's been a great experience, and, and I almost hate to see it come to an end. But as I, as I said a moment ago, I, I've been delighted that what I hope would happen in our church has happened, because many of us grew up in traditional churches where we learn prayer as kind of a religious duty. It was just sort of a motion that we went through, or perhaps we prayed not really expecting anything to happen, and we've watched that change and become more dynamic. I want to make sure that we're not like the church that I heard about many years ago, and this is a true story. There's a church, and this is, again, this is probably 80, 90, years ago. There was a church that had a, a tavern moving in across the street, a bar. And so the church people were real unhappy about the fact that a bar was moving in across the street. So w- w- when it opened up, they had a prayer meeting. They just prayed that something would happen. And at the end of their prayer meeting that evening, a thunderstorm came up. Lightning struck the bar, caught on fire, and burned to the ground. And the bar owner sued the church <laughs> for damages. <laughs> and the case went to court because the church had hired a lawyer to say it wasn't their fault. They didn't have anything to do with it. And after opening statements, the judge said, well, I don't know how this is gonna come out, but two facts are gonna be inescapably clear. Number one, the bar owner believes in prayer, and number two, the church does not. (laughs) And so... (laughs) I wanna make sure that we're not like that. And I want it to be a real experience, and and it's been a blessing to me to see you guys share your experience, your journey, and then grow with us. But today I wanna bring us to to the most famous prayer in the Bible, and I don't think that today's talk could really be called a sermon, it's really a workshop. But I'd like for us to go to the most famous prayer in the Bible, which we call the Lord's Prayer, or the model prayer, some people will call it. Actually, it occurs in the Bible in a couple of places. It seems that Jesus gave it one time, in an extemporaneous setting when a disciple asked him uh, a question. And then it seems that it occurred the second time in what we call the Sermon on the Mount. So let me just give you the first one. It's in Luke chapter 11, uh, verse 1. One day Jesus was praying in a certain place. When he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray. Now, you should understand something. This guy, that when he asked Jesus to teach him to pray, it wasn't like he had never prayed before or he didn't know anything about prayer. I mean, very possibly, this guy who asked Jesus to teach him to pray, prayed up to three and a half hours a day. That's got most of us beat by about three hours and 25 minutes. So he he understood prayer. But let me ask you a question. Have you ever done something that you thought you did okay or fairly well, then all of a sudden a professional comes up, somebody that really knows how to do it at the very top of the game, and you say to yourself, I don't know what I've been doing, but it's not what I thought it was. Like some of you, you play golf, and you play with your friends, and you do okay. But if you're out, you know, getting up a foursome and you can't find the fourth person, all of a sudden the marshal drives up in a cart with a guy and he says, "Hey, listen, I got to work this single in." And all of a sudden you look and it's one of the top ten PGA professionals in the nation, and he plays golf with your foursome. Or, and and when you when when you get through, you you think about his game and your game, and you say, "I don't know what I've been doing, but it's not golf." And I and I think that's what happened with this disciple. The disciple was thinking, "I may be praying three and a half hours a day, but when I see Jesus pray." Well, I don't know what I've been doing, but it isn't prayer. And so he asked Jesus, teach us to pray, and then Jesus gave them what we call the Lord's Prayer or the model prayer. But we also find it in the Gospel of Matthew in what we call the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount is this long sermon that is given for us or given to us that Jesus preached. Some people have said it is the greatest sermon ever preached by the greatest preacher ever to preach. And thankfully, we have it recorded for us in Matthew's, Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7. And in this Sermon on the Mount, Jesus touches on all kinds of to- topics, marriage, anger management, prayer, you name it. Jesus talks about all kinds of things, heaven, hell. The Sermon on the Mount is just an extraordinary, extraordinary message. But in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter 6, verse 9, Jesus teaches us how to pray. And he gives us the Lord's Prayer. And I find these first three words really interesting. He said, pray like This Pray like this. One thing I'm going to say at the end of this message, and I'll say it right now, if I were going to sketch out a prayer, if I were going to think about my position before God and a prayer that I might write, guys, i got to tell you something. I would not pray like the Lord's Prayer. I would pray very differently. So today, I think it's important for us on this last weekend of TalkingToGod.com to listen to Jesus as he gives us instruction on how to pray. It's important to me because I want to pray effectively. You know, in one of the talks that we had, we we saw that God's ways are not our ways. So a lot of times when we try to interpret God's answers to prayer, it feels different because we expect one thing and God does something differently. But that's because his ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. In a previous message in this series, we learned that we don't know how to pray, Romans chapter 8. But when Jesus teaches us how to pray, we learn some things about prayer that we can hang our hat on. So pray like this, Jesus said. And I'm gonna, what I'm going to do is I'm going to read the prayer, and then we're going to go to work. Our Father in heaven, may your name be kept holy. May your kingdom come soon. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today the food we need, and forgive us our sins as we have forgiven those who sin against us. And don't let us yield to temptation, but rescue us from the evil one. Let's talk about what we just read. Many of us grew up reciting the Lord's Prayer. We recited it in church, some of us played sports, we recited the Lord's Prayer before we went out on the field. Others of us, we just grew up as a child. Our parents taught us, perhaps at night, to recite the Lord's Prayer. Now please understand, there is nothing wrong with reciting the Lord's Prayer. But that's not the idea here. You realize that Jesus prayed for expansive periods of time. The Lord's prayer can be spoken in a matter of seconds. So when he said pray like this, he wasn't saying, say these words. He was basically saying, let me give you an outline for prayer. You know, sometimes when I give a talk, and most of my talks are extemporaneous, but especially when I give a talk on a subject that I've talked about a lot of times, I may just write down two or three lines. Now, I could read those lines in a matter of 10 seconds, but the talk will be 35 or 45 minutes. What I have is an outline, and that's what you have with the Lord's Prayer. It's certainly all right to recite the Lord's Prayer, but it would be like drinking concentrate because what we have before us here is not words to recite, but an outline of thoughts or the kinds of thoughts and the order of those thoughts as we pray successfully. It's a pattern, or as I've called this sermon, it's a template and Jesus is showing us how to pray effectively now sometime this week whether it's today or the next few days i'd like to ask you to perform an experiment if you would would you deconstruct the lord's prayer the way we're doing it today and would you just whether you do it by you know typing or handwriting or if you do it verbally take these items or these aspects of this outline and then build around them. Put these thoughts on paper or get them in your head and think about them, deconstruct it as we're going to do it today, and then see if it doesn't impact your praying in a huge way. Okay, let's look at the first part of the Lord's Prayer, which is simply, our Father, our Father. Do you realize that until Jesus came, nobody addressed God this way? For us, we've been addressing God this way all our lives because we were taught it from childhood for most of us. But when Jesus came to earth, he was the first one to teach us to address God as father. Before he came, nobody addressed God as father. Perhaps he might be addressed as the father of the nation of Israel, but no one would dare address God in the terms of being a heavenly father. God was addressed in a formal way So why did Jesus teach us to address God as our Father? Well, it was because God was Jesus' Father. He had always referred to him as Father. And because he referred to him as Father, and he knew that God wanted to adopt us as daughters and sons into God's family, what Jesus taught us is that we could address God the same way. In Romans chapter 8, verse 15, we have it spelled out for us. It says, you have not received a spirit. Now, the word spirit there means attitude. You have not received a spirit that makes you fearful slaves. Instead, you have received God's spirit when he adopted you as his children. Now we call him Abba Father. That's kind of interesting. When the translators were translating the New Testament, they came to that word Abba, but it was such a familiar expression. It was such an informal expression that they were afraid to translate it over into what it would actually be. I mean, if we were going to translate that word, it would be daddy. But it was, they were so cautious about that that they just went ahead and transliterated and brought it over from the original language. You know, through the years, I've been called all kinds of things as pastor of the church. I'll mention the ones I can repeat. Um, I've been called rep pastor by a lot of people, Pastor Mark. If someone's from the South, they might even call me Brother Hoover. About people who don't know me, you call me Reverend. If you know me, you call me Mark. But, you know, I got to think about my son, Stephen, who's somewhere here on the campus. Stephen has never called me pastor. I've been his pastor all 18 years of his life, but he's never called me Pastor Hoover. He's never called me Reverend unless he was joking with me. And, you know, in years past, I was called Mr. Hoover, but he's never called me Mr. Hoover. Stephen has one name for me, and that's Dad. And, you know, because we have that relationship, Stephen feels comfortable not only addressing me as dad, but he feels comfortable in knowing that he can talk to me anytime. And I mean, some of you perhaps have sat in my office before and I've got my cell phone there on my table next to me. And if that Saturday in the park by Chicago starts playing, I'll say, excuse me just a moment, I need to take this. And it's Stephen. I was in a meeting with our officers this week, our board, and I forgot to tell Stephen where I was going. And the next thing I know, the phone rang. I said, excuse me, guys, I gotta take this call. Why? He's my son. And we need to understand that you and I have that kind of relationship with God. And when we pray, we don't just say our Father and cruise right on. It's an opportunity for us to stop for a moment and think, our Father, what is it that we have in this marvelous relationship with God? The Bible says we've not received an attitude of a slave that causes us to be afraid to approach God, but instead we have the attitude of daughters and sons who feel comfortable approaching him. And i got to be cautious here because I know that some of you grew up with dads who were inattentive or maybe even abusive. And you might say, Mark, the idea of a heavenly father is a scary thought, but you've got you to realize that God is so much better father than even the best possible father who could have ever lived on the earth. Our father. And not only that, here's the thing. The Bible tells us, Jesus said, your father knows what you need before you ask him. So when you say our Father in heaven, you realize you're coming to talk to somebody who's already expecting you to come. He already knows what you need before you get there to present your prayers. I think it's significant that all the personal pronouns in the Lord's Prayer are, are collectives, are their plurals. Notice that it's not my Father, give me this day my daily bread, forgive me my sins. All of these are collective pronouns, our father. Right out of the box, when we start our prayer, it's like, yes, God, you are my father, but I'm not the only one here. I have brothers and sisters to talk to you about, to talk to you about. And then, in heaven, let's take the second line or the second phrase of the Lord's prayer. What is that about? In heaven, is that just like putting, you know, God's address? Is, is that his email address? He's in heaven? No, in heaven is the disclaimer of our prayers. When we pray our Father in heaven, what we are saying is, God, you see things I can't see. It goes something like this. When you pray in heaven, you're saying, God, I'm about to tell you what I think I need, but I'm not sure I know what I need. You see what I can't see. I see a fence. I don't understand why that fence is there. You see the Doberman on the other side of the fence. God, I think I know what I need, but you know for sure what I need. Then let's go to the next line. May your name be kept holy. Basically, what we're saying when we say that is, God, I care about your interest. Now, in a few moments, we're gonna see that God is fine with you telling him about anything you need. You can bring your concerns, bring your wishes. As we said last week, you can ask big. But I find it significant that before we get to our needs, God wants us to talk to him about his needs and about who he is. May your name be kept holy. God, I care about your interest. I would challenge you sometime to look through the Bible at all the times where the Bible talks about God's name and the importance of God's name. Why is that? Well, think about name in the sense of reputation. Think about your name in the community or your name at work. That's your reputation. That's what people think about you. That's Your characteristics that people associate with the name, your name when it comes up. And that's what the Bible is talking about when God talks about his name. And when we pray, we say, Our Father in heaven, may your name be kept great. May your name be important in the earth. Now, why is this significant? Think with me for a moment. Isn't it true that you and I live in a culture where day by day, God's name is getting more and more diminished? It seems like every time I open the paper, every time I read, articles online, I find another community that's deciding that they can't have God as any part of the public culture. You know, I just saw North Carolina, the chaplains for the police department in a particular community are no longer allowed to pray in Jesus' name. And some of us were so, our minds are so pickled by the current culture that we think that's constitutional. And we don't realize that at the beginning of our nation, God was a huge part of the framing of of our government, the framing of, of our official documentation. But over the centuries, God is more and more edged out. I mean, that's just the way the world works. And the idea is it's okay for you to keep God contained over here in church, but we don't want to think about God. God is no longer a useful hypothesis. God cares a great deal about his name. Check it out sometime in the Bible. And one thing I discover about God's name is that God's name is referenced many times in conjunction with creation and prayer. Now let's think about that first one for a moment. Why is it significant to God that he get credit for creating the world? Well, because God is the source of everything, and if we take away his props for being the source of everything then we're left with a God who's no longer big enough to answer our prayers. Let me show you a couple of verses where the name of God is brought together in conjunction with him being creator of the universe and his ability to answer our prayers. In Jeremiah 33, 2, this is what the Lord says. He who made the earth, the Lord who formed it and established it, the Lord is his name. We've got creation. We have his name. What does the next verse say? Call to me and I will answer you and tell you great and unsearchable things you do not know. Psalm 124, verse 8, our help is in the name of the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. And I just want to say something to you. Now, I'm, I don't play softball on this one. If you take away God's credit for creating the world, first of all, you have a lot to explain how all this awesome world happened by accident. You know, every once in a while, people who don't believe in God as creator will ask me, well, you just believe in all these miracles and stuff. Listen, just move the miracles off the table. Don't even think about the supernatural. It's the natural that causes me to believe there's a God. But here is the thing, when we no longer give God credit for creation, we have a God who is so small that he cannot answer our prayers. So it follows that we give God the worship that he deserves for creating the universe and then ask him for what we need. We need a God big enough to answer our prayers. Let's take the next line, your kingdom come. Again, we haven't gotten to our needs yet. We're still talking about God, our Father in heaven. May your name be kept great. May your kingdom come. Why is this an important statement? Because I've said, before I've said a word about my life, I've admitted something very important that screws a lot of people up when it comes to prayer. When a lot of people pray, they expect God to answer their prayers so that they will have heaven on earth. And when God does not give us heaven on earth, then they think, wow, it's, God does not answer prayer. Maybe God is not as great as the Bible says he is. But when I pray your kingdom come, what I'm saying to God is before I ask God for anything, I'm admitting this is not heaven, nor will it be, nor will an answer to prayer make it heaven. There is a day when God's kingdom is coming, but this is not the kingdom. And I admit that. And now the next line. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I've said this before in a recent sermon, one of the things that kind of gets under my skin sometimes is when people have the idea that everything that happens in the world is, is God's will. You know, somebody has a car accident. Well, I guess it's just God's will. You know, somebody gets a home invasion. Well, I guess it's just God's will. No, it's not God's will. I mean, most things that happen on the earth are not God's will. The Bible says in our prayer, we're to pray your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In heaven, God's will is always done. So what does God mean by this in a practical sense? Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Well, I think in a a broad sense, when we ask God for his will to be done, we're really praying for the future when indeed that happens, when Jesus rules and reigns. But guys, please listen to me. I think there's a very specific and practical sense in which it begins to be very personal. When I say, God, your will be done, what I'm saying is, Father, I want your will to be done in my life. Let me give you an example from the Old Testament that maybe will help you understand this. When the ten plagues came on Egypt, God had sent Moses to tell Pharaoh to let the people go, and Moses wouldn't do it. And so God turned up the heat on Pharaoh. You can read about this in Exodus. God turned the water to blood, sent frogs and lice and flies and disease on the cattle and all that kind of stuff. But there's an interesting side note to those plagues because the Israelites were living in a little community called Goshen. And when the plagues came on Egypt, God kept Goshen from experiencing most of those plagues. Let me read to you what the Bible says. On that day, I will deal differently. I love those words. I will deal differently with the land of Goshen where my people live. Guys, I don't want to be dark, and I don't want to be negative, and I am the most positive person in the world, but I'm going to be straight with you. When I look at how America is behaving today, the, the tolerance for sin that we have, just the moral darkness, the awful things that are happening, the, just the, the issues that are pandemic in our world today. I'm not really sure things are going to end well. I've read the book of Revelation. I've read the book of Daniel. I've seen what God says prophetically. I would love to think that we're going to turn around. One thing I know is that God is excessively merciful, and I know that if America turns back to God, that God will be gracious. I don't know where we are, but I do know this. When I look around, I see God's will being rarely done. But what I am saying is, Father, if the world around me is not doing your will, just like Goshen was a zone where you dealt differently with people who were doing your will, let me be in a different zone. May your will be done in my life. If everybody else around me is not doing your will, let me do your will. If you're married, let my wife and me, or my husband and me, let us be a zone of doing your will. If you have kids, let my wife and my husband, or my wife or my husband and my kids do your will. And and if you're part of New Spring Church, let New Spring Church do your will. May your will be done. And if no place else, if nobody else will do God's will around you, then you do God's will and ask God for the strength to help you do his will. And now we get to the personal stuff. Give us this day our daily bread. Now, that's a metaphor for just asking God for whatever it is that you need today. Whenever you get to that place where you're talking about giving, uh, asking God to give you your daily bread, what you're saying is, Lord, please give me what I need today. It's not just food here. It's what you need today. But there's an important part of this that I think we need to focus on. Give us this day our daily bread. Two times in that one statement, Jesus taught us to pray in regard to living one day at a time. I can stress out because I'm asking God to fix things, fix situations that I haven't arrived at yet. Now, everybody in Jesus' audience would have known exactly what Jesus was talking about because it goes back to the time when Moses was leading the Israelites through the wilderness. Three and a half million people, no food. They're walking around in the desert and then God supplies them with manna. And the people thought it tasted like bread and honey. So that's the reason for the expression for bread. Now, when the manna fell, Moses told them, collect all you need, but just for today. Don't, don't try to get tomorrow's manna. Tomorrow's manna, will, God will make sure that it's here. You don't need to collect tomorrow's manna. Let me read to you what the Bible says in the Exodus 16. Then Moses told them, do not keep any of it until morning. But some of them didn't listen and kept some of it until morning. But by then, it was full of maggots, and it had a terrible smell. Well, what do the people have to learn when the manna came? They had to learn to ask God for that day's daily bread. To me, that, that idea of maggots and smelling, that's a concept of what worry does to us. When we start worrying about tomorrow's bread before tomorrow comes. Jesus said in, Ma- in Matthew 6:34, don't worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will bring its own worries. Today's trouble is enough for today. Somebody can say, well, that sounds irresponsible. I'm not talking about not planning. Certainly we should plan and we should prepare. But guys, think about Lamentations 3.22. It says, His compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. If you're, a, if you're God's daughter, if you're God's son, you ought to get up every morning like a kid at Christmas, ready to discover God's new mercies for that day. And now, the next line. Forgive us our sins as we have forgiven those, and that is the correct translation. Forgive us our sins as we have forgiven those who sin against us. Now, can we just talk for a moment and make sure that we understand something clearly? This is a prayer for believers to pray. This is a prayer for God's daughters and God's sons to pray every day. Some of you at that moment, when you recognize that, you could ask a question. You could say, wait a minute, Mark. Every weekend you stand up on stage and you tell people that if they will ask God to forgive them, that God will forgive us of all sins past, present, and future. So now if we are God's children and all of our sins have been taken away from us, why would we need to pray every day for God to forgive our sins? Guys, the Bible's clear about this. When it comes to sin, there are eternal price tags and there are earthly consequences of sin. Let me see if I can explain it this way. When you accept Jesus as Lord and Savior, you are no longer legally responsible for your sins. They have been paid for by the blood of Christ. But when you and I do wrong, there are ramifications, there are natural consequences for sin. If you look at the life of David when he slept with his next door neighbor and had her husband killed, God said to David right up front, David, you are forgiven, you will not die. But if you read David's life, his life was a nightmare from that point on because he was dealing with the consequences of it. Maybe another way of explaining this is I really believe I'm in a very secure marriage. I've been married for 35 years and my wife is the most awesome woman in the world and she has made it so clear to me so many times since we were teenagers that she would never divorce me. She might kill me, but she would never divorce me. (laughs) And I know that, I'm in a secure relationship. So if, if I'm having a bad day and I kinda lose it and I start saying unkind things to Mary Alice, am I worried that she is going to divorce me No, but it's sure going to screw up the next few hours. (laughs) So here's the thing. When Jesus died for our sins, legally speaking, he dealt with all the ramifications of our sin. There there is no longer any penalty for it. In in fact, there are only two ways to pay for sin. Either Jesus pays for sin or we pay for them eternally when we leave this life. And for me, I've settled out of court. I have dealt with all the legal responsibilities of my sins. They have been placed upon Christ. But here is the thing. As a Christ follower, even though my sins have already been paid for, legally speaking, I cannot flip God off every day and my life not be affected by it. Um, This is not a pure illustration of it, but, but maybe it's somewhat helpful. You guys know that when somebody does something wrong and they wind up in the court system, it's possible for them to wind up in criminal court and everything to go okay in criminal court, but for them to have a whole different matter in civil court. And that's not a perfect illustration, but it, it bears. No prison, no, no, you know, no, no electric chair, but civil penalties. And I think that that happens to us who are Christ followers. Our sins have been washed away. We will not have to go to hell. We will never have to face them again. Christ paid the penalty on the cross, but if we continue doing stuff that is wrong, we could deal with the ramifications on the earth. And so why does Jesus want us to pray about these things? Well, if we ask God to forgive us our sins, then we're we're saying basically we recognize that we have sins and we're taking it seriously. Or as the old timers used to say, we're keeping short accounts. In 1 John chapter 1, verse nine, it's a great statement. The Bible says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If, we're, if we confess our sins, What does it mean to confess our sins? Some of us grew up in a tradition in which we confess them to some church leader. But here the Bible is not talking to us about confessing our sins to a church leader. We're confessing our sins directly to God. That's part of prayer. In fact, that's why Jesus put this in the Lord's Prayer on a daily basis. We tell the Lord, Lord, I know I've done something wrong. And guys, let me be real clear about something. The word confess is two Greek words that are jammed together. The prefix is homo, H-O-M-O, which means the same, and "lego" or legis, which means to speak. It means to say the same thing. So when I come before God and I tell God I've done wrong, what God wants me to do is to say the same thing about my sin that he says about it. I don't counsel too much anymore, but toward the end of my time counseling, I became cognizant of the fact that there's a whole new nomenclature for wrongdoing. And I was hearing it a lot toward the end. And I, I don't know if it came out of, you know, I don't know what it came out of, but after a while, there's no such thing. Did you guys know there's no such thing as sin anymore? It's a mistake. I made a mistake. Somebody told me, I made a mistake. I slept with somebody who's not my husband. No, that's, that's adultery. A mistake is leaving the milk out. And, and I think that's big to God, and that's the reason why I bring it up today. You know, here's the deal. If you commit adultery, what God wants you to do is to say, God, I committed adultery. I'm, I'm going to be honest with you. I'm turning myself in. Lord, I, I'm your son. I'm your daughter. I shouldn't have done that. That's wrong. That's out of character for somebody like me. God, I committed adultery. I lied. God, I cheated. God, I was envious. God, I stole. But here is the beauty of it. Guys, is this a Because you could say, well, I find that kind of negative. Oh, it's immensely positive. Because if you think about it, God's not asking you to crawl on broken glass. God's not asking you to take a whipping for it. What God is asking you to do is to show up, man up, woman up, be honest about it, and say, God, I did this. And the Bible says that if we do that, he is faithful and just, and he not only will forgive us, but he'll clean us up let us start a new day. Now, the hard part to that. When Jesus taught us to pray, he taught us to pray like this. Forgive us our sins or debts as we have already forgiven those who have sinned against us. Now, most of us are prone to pray something like this. Lord, please forgive me today I'll do my best to forgive her, especially if she straightens up and apologizes. <laughs> do you notice that God didn't give us that slack? God says that we don't even show up to ask for forgiveness until we already deal with this matter. Why? So this is where it gets really serious. I am a flawed person asking a holy God to forgive me. I am a person who messes up asking a God who is awesome creator. I am asking him to forgive me. And the way God looks at it is if an awesome person, perfect God, can forgive a flawed guy like Mark, Mark being a flawed person needing forgiveness can certainly turn around to other flawed people who hurt him, and he can forgive them. To help us with this, Jesus told a story one day, and it's one of my favorites in the Bible. Jesus told a story about a guy who worked for a king and he made minimum wage. And somehow he wound up owing $5 billion. Now, you know know, this is an extraordinary story. I mean, first of all, I wanna know how could a guy who makes minimum wage wind up owing $5 billion and always think he must've just broken something really expensive. But back in the day, if a person owed money and couldn't pay it, there was no bankruptcy court. He could be sold as a slave, his wife could be sold as a slave, his kids could be sold as a slave, all his possessions could be liquidated and it became the possession and the possession of the person who held the debt. So this poor guy who makes minimum wage, owes $5 billion, and he goes in to see the king and he falls down before the king and he says, please have pity with me, just give me some time and I will pay you. Now, do you see how Jesus is setting up this story? Who do you think the king represents, the offended king? God, who is the person who owes the debt that he cannot pay? That's you and me, see. We can't undo our sin. We can't pay for our sin. I mean, and this king had such pity on this poor fellow because he knelt down before him and said, please give me time. And the king is thinking, time is your enemy because interest is accruing. You can't even pay the interest on your debt. And when this poor fellow, who was getting ready to lose his, his, his freedom and his family, when he knelt before the king and said, Lord, Father King, please forgive me, the king had mercy and just said, oh, I forgive you everything. You're free to go. Well, that's salvation, isn't it? That's forgiveness. That's when you ask Jesus to come into your life, and you're forgiven of that unpayable debt. Can you imagine this guy walks into the palace owing $5 billion? He walks out owing nothing, debt-free. Some of us will never know what that means to be debt-free, right? <laughs> Do you know what he did? He found a co-worker who owed him $50 dollars. And he said, pay me what you owe me. And the guy said, please, just give me some time and I'll pay up. And certainly he could have done that. Just give me some time and I'll pay up. And the guy said, no, I'm not going to give you time. He had the poor guy thrown in prison. And the other co-workers saw what happened. They went back to the king and they said, you know that guy that you forgave the $5 billion? He found a guy who worked with him who owed him $50 and he wouldn't forgive him and had him thrown in a prison. And the king got angry and the king said, bring him back in here. I'm going to turn him over to the tormentors. And that's the only part of Jesus' story I'm not sure I understand. I don't think I want to understand it. But basically what Jesus is trying to teach us is that if we've been forgiven of an unpayable debt, how dare we not forgive somebody else who's flawed like us? And so we come before God and we say, forgive us our debts as we've already forgiven those who sin against God. And now let's finish. Don't let us yield to temptation but rescue us from the evil one. It's been one of the most perplexing lines from the Lord's Prayer for years because this idea of leading us not into temptation. Some people have the idea, do I have to pray that God will not tempt me to sin? And we know that's not the case because in James, the Bible says, God is never tempted to do wrong and he never tempts anyone else. So what exactly are we asking God for? When you get to the end of the Lord's Prayer and you're saying, don't let me get into temptation, let me ask you a question. Do you find yourself making the same dumb mistakes over and over and over again? I do. You know what? There's certain things I never do. I never, you know, substance abuse has never been part of my life, so I never have to worry about that. Some of you have to worry a lot about it, but for me, it's never been part of my life. So I'm not struggling to be tempted there but I have areas where I just keep falling. And I really believe that what Jesus is teaching us to pray here is, Lord, teach me the areas of my vulnerability, show me the areas of my, help me with the areas of my vulnerability. Lord, you know where I'm vulnerable. You know that Satan would like to take me down. He would like to take my marriage down. He would like to take my family down. Lord, show me the areas where I'm vulnerable. Well, as I said earlier, this is not the way I would have lined out a prayer but it's the way Jesus did. And he said, pray like this. And he said, if you do, it'll work. I wanna encourage you to try that experiment someday this week. Just take the Lord's Prayer apart, and instead of reciting it, get to our Father, and then think and talk to God a little bit about what it's like to have him for a father. Talk to God about other people. Talk to God about his greatness and his awesomeness, and how much you desire his kingdom to come. And all the ways that you would love to see God's will be done on earth the way it is in heaven. And on and on. And see if it doesn't revolutionize your prayer life.